there came a time when the nation was facing an enormous amount of problems. And so they did what countries do throughout history. They gathered the best and the brightest of them to noodle through the problems and try to figure out what should we do? Because if this domino falls and you extend it out logically, everything will be lost. Our country will be defeated. We will be picked over by our enemies. Our people will be depressed and enslaved. And everything that we have done will be for naught. In the process of doing this, they ignored all of the experts on the issue. And they focused on areas that seemingly, although the argument is one that we're well familiar with, didn't really affect things. They were primarily concerned with the previous investment of efforts. Oh, we've, we've already spent X amount. We've already sent so many people. We've already lost so many lives. It would be a waste to let this domino fall. And in the process of doing this, these best and the brightest as they were, set the nation on a course of history that ultimately would see all of their fears come to fruition, yet none of the results that they had feared coming to pass. And no, we are not talking about Southeast Asia, Vietnam, and the 1960s and the 1970s. In June, June 22nd of 1773 to be exact, the British Empire and the British government, Parliament, faced an, an existential crisis the likes of which very few empires had ever seen before. Maybe Rome. Most countries never got to the size that England had reached and really had never experienced the massive weight that such an empire creates. Rome is probably the only real example of anything else that, that, that even comes close. As someone once wrote, the sun never sets on the British Empire. Rome conquered the known world. These difficulties that the English found themselves in were the result of several factors. Number one was the constant, and I do mean constant, war. Over the previous hundred years, England had been at war for almost all of it. Most of those wars had been concluded successfully and had resulted in this massive empire. One of them had started out pretty badly, but ended up okay. But in the process of these wars, they had built this army and this navy, this 300-ship navy, that on July 20, or June 22, 1773, King George III had gone to Portsmouth to sea, and in a four- or five-day celebration had visited many of his ships 
and many of his sailors in what became an incredibly expensive celebration of British military power, which, of course, contributed to the second problem, which was that the nation, the kingdom of Great Britain, had massive, massive debt to fund this hundred years worth of conflict. They had borrowed money significantly and were rapidly reaching the point where they weren't going to be able to pay it back. They weren't going to be able to make the interest payment on it. Their economy was tremendously unsettled because of what was going on around the world. In fact, there was a great deal of concern about the uneasy population that when King George traveled to Portsmouth for this fantastic review of the Navy, great efforts were made in security to make sure that King George would be safe because there was grave concern that King George might be assaulted, might be hurt. And while we as Americans in the 21st century think of King George a certain way, keep in mind that in England, that was not the case. He was revered. And yet this uneasy population was looked at by the government with grave suspicion. England at the time had somewhere around 31 colonial colonies, colonial colonies, it's redundant, redundant, but they had 31 colonies around the world. Now, some of those colonies were, you know, India, some were the 13 American colonies, one of them was Canada. Each of those colonial areas had a governor, and those governors were the on-the-ground experts for what was going on in that area. And so Parliament in 1773 thought to themselves, with everything that's going on right now and all the problems that we're having, we better ask some questions. And so they sent to each of these 31 governors a survey that consisted of 21 questions, and they were pointed questions about the population, the terrain, the military situation, all of these things. And when the surveys came back, they collated the data and... You would think that they would follow the science, right? I mean, here's the data telling us what this, what's going on, but A, should we? Now, 13 of those colonies were, of course, the, the, the American colonies, as they would soon to become known, the 13 United States. These 13 colonies were really the focal point in the 1770s of the British problems. Now, there were other problems as well. India had issues with the Raj, and they had, they had their issues. Ireland, Ireland for 100 years had been saying no taxation without representation. The biggest problem that, that the British had with the 13 American colonies was they were very popular. A full 4% of English and Ireland and Scotland and Wales, the population of those four areas, in the previous 25 years had moved to the New World, to, to, to the 13 colonies. People were leaving England and going to the colonies because they saw a better opportunity for themselves. They saw essentially self-government. They saw an economy that was really pretty good. 
despite Parliament's attempts to throttle it. England, the Parliament, the King, put some things into place. You're familiar with some of these. The Stamp Act, which was this idea of we need to tax Americans. England, in, in England, the in Great Britain, the citizens in Great Britain were the highest tax citizens in the world up to that point. They may still be, I don't know. But at the time, they were the highest tax citizens in the world. And they were being taxed at a rate that was six times higher than the American colonials were. And this pissed them off. Moreover, there were those who believed that the French and Indian War, a war that had been basically started on behalf of the colonies, won by the English, but funded by the English, uh, wasn't being paid their fair share by the colonies. That was their belief. I'm not here to argue whether it was true or not. What I'm saying is that was the belief in Parliament, and so they had put these Stamp Act laws into place, and they were a complete and utter failure. In fact, in the 13 American colonies, a grand total of 45 pounds sterling was collected in, in, in accordance with the Stamp Act, and all 45 pounds of that came from one colony, Georgia. That's it. The thir 12 of the 13 colonies basically said, no, we're not paying that, told the king's tax collectors to kiss off, and Georgia managed to collect 45 pounds, probably from one guy, if you, if you dig far enough into it, and I didn't. And that's it. That's all they got from it. A few years later, this would be followed by the Tea Act, which is a great example of the government creating a problem and then trying to solve the problem while creating a new problem. I don't have time to go through the whole Tea Act, but what you need to understand is the Tea Act offended people, especially Americans. It was great if you happened to be an investor in the East India Tea Company because it essentially made them the monopoly on tea. And as a reward for being the monopoly, they lowered the price of tea so that it was cheaper than the smuggled tea. But that wasn't the point. The point was it was still being taxed. And taxation without representation leads to problems. The American colonials, American colonials responded to the Tea Act by uh, the Tea Party, dumping 10,000 pounds worth of tea into Boston Harbor. You're all familiar with that. This led to the Intolerable Acts, which came about shortly thereafter, which again were seen by the Americans as intolerance in, 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 in Parliament. They were known as the Townsend Acts set to punish Boston, but the reaction of the colonies was basically to say, okay, you're going to screw over Boston, we're going to help them. And so all the other 11 colonies, 12 colonies, sent supplies and materials to Boston so that all of the blockade and all of the, the punishment that the British Parliament put on Boston essentially went unnoticed. At the same time, the Parliament passed something called the Quebec Act, which, while it was not actually part of the response to the Tea Party, it developed concurrently with it. And it was seen in the colonies as part of the response to Britain's intensifying of things. The Quebec Act was something that today would, I don't even know that we would notice it today, but in, in, in 1774, it created a situation where France, which had lost Canada to England, Essentially, Canada was allowed to be French, including being Roman Catholic. 
Now, remember that the colonies were almost exclusively, there was one exception, but almost exclusively, the, the other 12 were all Protestants and all, to some varying degree, uh, anti-Catholic, vehemently anti-Catholic. And even the King of England is required by law, this is the only reason George III's on the throne in the first place, is because England has a law that says our king cannot be Catholic. He has to be Protestant. And so Parliament passes this law with the king's acquiescence, saying that Quebec, France, French Canada, can be Catholic. You guys can be Catholic. That's fine. Which... To the American colonialists, this is a huge threat. Now, again, we don't see it that way today, but that is just like saying, well, <laughs> go ahead and let those Haitians on in. Boy, they did not like that. The government of Britain, Parliament, took those surveys, took all of this stuff that was going on, and realized that they were facing a huge existential crisis. I, I keep using that word existential because because it really is. It is a it is a crisis that they had convinced themselves if they failed to solve this crisis, England would be destroyed. This is a life or death struggle. They took those surveys that they got back, they compiled them all together, and for the next eight years, they would base their foreign policy on three pillars or conclusions that they came from, came to from these surveys. The number one conclusion that they came to, and these aren't, these aren't necessarily one, two, and three in order. They're, they're, they're three legs of a triad, three legs of a, of, a, of, a, of a stool. They're equal. But the first one they came to was that, quote, most colonialists are loyal to the crown. They believed that most of the colonialists particularly those in the 13 American colonies, were actually loyal British citizens. That they weren't inclined to, to be disruptive. It was really just that handful in Boston, in Massachusetts, that was really the problem. Now, again, this was disproved by their own survey and their own experience. Ireland had been trying to overthrow, overthrow everything for 100 years. India was a bubbling cauldron of things. Canada was more French than English and, and would love to have gone back to France. But the British convinced themselves by these surveys, by the carefully worded responses that the governors gave, that most of their colonialists were loyal to the crown. And so we would have to deal with those who weren't. The second pillar that they came up with was that most colonists would be cowed into submission by a show of force. All we got to do is send this glorious Navy, this 300-ship Navy, and a bunch of troops, and all of these people who are arguing with us and yelling at us and rebelling against us will be cowed into submission. And if we have to kill a few of them, well, so be it. The rest, the, the rest of those colonialists who might be on the edge will see that we have the strength of force, and they'll just acquiesce. But again they missed a couple of their own results. The American colonialists, didn't even look at Canada, but the, the 13 American colonies had probably more guns than the British Army did. And in that era, all guns were pretty much equal, 
It wasn't like they had the British Army had AR-15s and F-15s and nuclear weapons. Sorry, nuclear weapons. And the colonists had, you know, handguns. It wasn't like that. In that era, the American colonials had almost as many, if not more, guns than the British Army did. And as for that British Navy, oddly enough, the Americans were really not all that afraid of the British Navy. There were a couple reasons for that. Over the previous hundred years, the Navy had grown significantly to, like I said, to 300 ships. But of those 300 ships, many had been built in the previous 20 years because of the need for naval vessels to fight against France and Spain. The problem was they had built these ships so rapidly that the wood that they had built them with was not seasoned properly. A good wooden warship built properly with proper seasoned wood can last a long time, in service 25, 30 years. We have two that are, two of them that are afloat in our own. We have the USS Constitution that's still afloat, and we have the USS Constellation in Baltimore that are still afloat. The HMS Victory, Trafalgar's flagship, Nelson's flagship at Trafalgar, is uh, mounted in concrete because it can't float anymore. They had built these ships with green wood that was not seasoned properly, and so these ships required massive amounts of maintenance to keep them working, and B, they weren't going to last very long, 10 years at best. And sailing back and forth across the Atlantic, distant from their home bases, was going to exacerbate those maintenance problems. The other reason that the Americans were really not cowed by the British Navy was that America had the second largest, the American colonies, America, had the second largest merchant fleet in the entire world, second only to Britain, and not by much, merchant ships. Now, merchant ships, you say to me, well, Dave, those aren't military ships. Eh, not yet, but they can easily become military ships. The Bonhomme Richard, John Paul Jones's flagship, was, a, was basically a freighter. There were different, you know, different builds of ships in those days, and, and it wasn't that difficult to convert one. The other thing that America noted at the time was that America had the best sailors in the world, not the English. The American sailors were considered the best in the world because they, they were very familiar with the North Atlantic. They were very familiar with the Atlantic seaboard, and they were not impressed. There was no drafting against their will of American sailors, and so they were there because they wanted to be. And they were very, very good at it. And much of the combat in the American Revolution and the War of 1812 would show that. That second pillar that most of, most of the colonials would be cowed by a show of force was clearly flawed. In fact, they should have known that already because of the Boston Massacre issue. But for some reason, the government convinced themselves of this. The third pillar that Britain in 1774, convinced itself was that if we fail to act, the domino will fall. Again, <laughs> this is 1773, 1960. The British convinced themselves that if we don't squash this rebellion, this, this discontent, this unrest in America, the dominoes will start to fall and Britain will be left completely defenseless against France and Spain. And her bones will be picked over, and she will be destroyed. I think it was Mark Twain that said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does echo. 
And you see that in this domino theory that the British developed with the American colonies. We saw it in Vietnam. We saw it in Southeast Asia. We've kind of seen it in our reaction in Afghanistan. We've seen the, the same concept that, you know, if we just go over there with a huge military, we'll kowtow people. We've seen it in the same idea that all these people will be loyal. None of these things came to pass. These, these three assumptions that the British made are the same assumptions that keep echoing throughout history. And yet, almost every time, they fail to, to meet expectations. But when we look at those three assumptions, it makes me think about what we're going through now. Our government, allegedly, is gathering the best and the brightest to try to deal with the problems, the myriad of problems that face us right now. Massive debt, constant war, a, a pandemic. And I'm wondering if they're not making those same three assumptions. That most Americans are, in fact, loyal to the government, quote-unquote government. Is that true? Do you think most Americans would stand by the American government no matter what? That it's just a few loudmouths that are really causing all the problems? That if the government just shows force, Americans will kowtow to the government's needs? wasn't that long ago that we had a president of the United States that said, you can't stand up against us because you don't have F-15s and nuclear weapons, sorry, nuclear weapons. And what was the reaction? What's the reaction? Oh my God, he's right. We don't have those things. We better, be we better bend the knee. Do you really think that if the government of the United States tried to kowtow people with military force, they would go well? And if they fail to act, the dominoes will fall. There's almost this mindset, it seems to me, in our government that if they don't crush the opposition to things that the government wants to do, that somehow or another the nation will fall. And it leaves me wondering today, as I'm doing all this reading in, in, in American history, what would happen if Americans, not all of us, I mean, just a few is all it takes, right? threw all of our masks and our vaccines into the proverbial harbor. What if we just said to the government, no, we're not doing it. The government of Britain used that impetus to come to their three conclusions, which were badly flawed, and it left to the loss of the 13 colonies. And within another 200 years, it basically led to the loss of their empire. But by then, the world situation had changed and England isn't being picked over by the bones of Bone, the bones of England aren't being picked over by France and Spain. If the American people stood up and said no, do you really think it would be the end of America? I don't. But the best and the brightest sure seem to think that, don't they? Mm -hmm.